Welcome, everyone. This is Russ Galzo of Chronicles of the End Times. Thank you for being with me today. As we continue our study in the book of Revelation, today we're going to look at chapter 3. And we're looking at the Church of Sardis. And so let's just uh, dive right into this. Let's uh, read those six verses in chapter 3 and see what the uh, Lord has to say to the church at Sardis. To the angel of the church of Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard and obey it and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels. Some wonderful promises. And as you can see, the pattern here is that the Lord rebukes, you know, he corrects, you know, he gives the warnings, and then he slays out the rewards. And this is true in our lives. You know, God will will reprimand us, you know, maybe things uh, haven't just gone our way and we're fighting against uh, life and we need to look up and see if God is actually in our way, if he's putting himself in our way to change our direction and so he can bless us and reward us. Now, the church at Sardis, it was like a lot of churches and even today where the church takes on uh, the um, nature of the community. It takes on the personality of the community. And you could see where whether you go to some affluent areas where there's churches or where you go into some really run-down uh, areas that are in real hardship, and the people are really struggling, they take on the personalities of the community. And well, they should in, in many instances. So we really, churches should have the personality of Jesus Christ. I mean, this is, right, this is the, the bottom line, bringing Jesus to every avenue. Jesus had no trouble uh, spreading the gospel and teaching the ways of the Lord, his Father, to the rich or the poor. Either the message was the same. And here in Sardis, they had the city had a reputation for being a healing center, and it boasts about the power of Artemis and these other gods that they served to bring the dead to life. The truth is obviously otherwise. The reputation is a lie, says John, and the church is just like the city they're claiming to be the source of life, when in fact it itself is already dead. Materially speaking, the city... Uh, was wealthy and had many prosperous citizens, but it wouldn't last long because the city was in decline, and it was pretty much denying that. And the church was the same way. John said, this is a facade. It's just an empty show. And according to this letter to the church of Sardis, they had the same characteristics as the city around them. Spiritually, there was no power left. It was all an outward show. There was no inner reality to back it up. You know, Sardis was built on this hill. It's like a thousand feet 
above the surrounding plain. And, you know, it, it had a lot of uh, jewelry and textiles and dyes, and this is how it made its money. And, of course, it had a temple, a large temple dedicated to the goddess of Artemis. And it was a very strong pagan religious center, as we've seen in a lot of these cities. So Jesus goes on to explain, he goes, I'm the one who holds the sevenfold spirit of God and has the messengers in his hand. God, it says, was pleased to have all the fullness dwell in Christ in Colossians 1.19. So Jesus is once again declaring who he is. He goes, I hold the sevenfold spirit of God. He is the complete. He is complete in every way. And so this church had this great reputation of being alive, but it was dead. And so what does he say to them? Quick and easy, wake up. He tells them to strengthen what remains. Get back to the truth before your souls die. In other words, he's saying there's a little life there somewhere. Some, some of you are still following me with all your hearts. And you need to strengthen. Those people need to be strengthened. Those people need to be lifted up. And the rest of you need to repent and do what they're doing. You know, because he's telling them, look, I'm going to come like a thief in the night. Remember, Jesus said to the rest of the world, he goes, I come like a thief in the night, a time you do not expect me. But us as Christians, if we're following Christ and we're walking in the light, we should be aware of the signs of the times around us and know that Christ could come at any time. But if we're not, then we'll be taken by surprise and it'll be too late. You know, Jesus said, be careful of your hearts, that they will be weighed down with immoral behavior and drunkenness and with the anxieties of life. And that the day that I come will close on you unexpectedly like a trap. And boom, that is too late. He's warning them. He doesn't want them to be lost. And he says, those who follow me, those who stay with me, because I will not blot his name out of the book of life. Can your name be blotted out of the book of life? Jesus is saying it's, it can. And there are many who believe that once you're saved, you know, you're always saved. No matter what you do, as long as you accept Christ sometime in your life, you know, you're a Christian. Well, it seems like here Jesus is saying just the opposite. No, that's not true. Your name can be blotted out of the book of life. It's also an interesting concept to think about. Is everyone's name written in the book of life in the beginning? That's an interesting thought, isn't it? Well, you can say, well, you know, wait a minute now. you got to be saved except Christ to be in the book of life. This is true, but it brings an interesting thought, doesn't it? You know, God starts out wanting everybody in the book of life. I mean, your name is written somewhere. In chapter 20 of Revelation, verse 12, it's interesting scripture. It says, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were open, and another book was open, which was the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. And this is a judgment of the unsaved, of those who have rejected Christ. This is not a judgment. We have passed from judgment into life, those who accepted Christ into their lives. So this is not about that. But it's interesting to note that the, all these books were open. And, of course, one of the books that was open, it notes, is the book of life. And so it could be that one time or another, people were written into the book of life, and then they were blotted out because they never accepted Christ, or because maybe they accepted Christ and then they fell away. So it's not something we're going to build a doctrine on, but I just thought I'd mention it. It's kind of interesting uh, to look at. 
We know that God is merciful and kind, and he wants everyone to come to him. And Ezekiel, he tells us in Ezekiel that he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. God is not up there like, you know, you know the football team or a baseball team or something that we hated, you know, finally loses and we're like, yeah, it's good for them. They deserve it. You know, like some fans do, you get all uh, up in it. And Jesus is, you know, he doesn't look at life like that. He knows how serious it is. He knows how eternal the punishment is and how eternal the reward is. He's warning Sardis and he's warning the Christians there that you guys are living on borrowed time. You're walking on thin ice right now. And if you don't repent and turn around, your name will be blotted out of the book of life. And he goes on to say that he will acknowledge your name to the Father. Isn't that like so amazing? Can you imagine? You're standing there and Jesus says, Father, this is so and so. They're a follower of me. I want you to, I'm just going to announce their name to you. <laughs> it's just beyond uh, beyond belief, isn't it? How, how the creator of all the universe, of all the things that are seen and unseen, would acknowledge our name uh, to the Father. It's, uh, it's a blessing beyond anything we can ever imagine. So now we move on to the Church of Philadelphia. This is one of my favorite churches to study. The Church of Philadelphia was a poor church. They hardly had anything. But as we'll read here in the scriptures, they are faithful. They are faithful unto the Lord. Let's look at it. It starts in verse 7. To the angel of the church in the Philadelphia write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no man can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars. I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have, so that no one will take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from God. And I will also write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So the Church of Philadelphia gets commended. There's not one rebuke to this church. It's very, very unusual, as we've uh, read through chapter 2 and 3. But Philadelphia is the church that is faithful, faithful to the end, faithful through all kinds of hardship. The city of Philadelphia there was built by the king of Pergamum, Atalus of Philadelphus. The city was destroyed twice in the first century by two major earthquakes. And once again, we're looking at a city that is the center of pagan worship, like most of these cities we've seen in the area of what we now call Turkey. And there are here these, all these churches are trying to grow in the midst of all this demonic uh, power and, and demonic worship. And in the midst of all that, he tells him, I know your deeds. And he sees, see, I have placed before you an open door. 
that no one can shut. The devil can't shut it. Man can't shut it. The powers of this world can't shut it. And he says, I know you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and not denied my name. Here he opens this door to this church that has next to no resources. They're a poor church. They don't have much of anything, but they have faith in God. And what does Paul tell us in his letters? He tells us that when we're weak in Christ, then we are strong. You know, when we don't think we can do it, that's when we're the strongest because we allow Christ to come in and be glorified and work through us. And we're amazed at what God does in those situations. He says, you know what? I know you don't have a lot of strength, yet you have kept my word and not denied my name. No matter what you're in the middle of, you're still saying, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. This is the way I live. And this is what the word of God says. These people were loving the people around them, even in in the most difficult times. And they were showing people that were in this deep darkness that Satan had created in this area, that there was a way out, that there was someone who loved them and someone who could forgive them their sins. And it's interesting to say that he goes on to talk about the synagogue of Satan. Uh, these Jews who claim to be you know, righteous Jews, but they're not. He calls them liars. He goes, he goes on to say, I'll make them fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Now, more than likely, this did not happen in their lifetime here on earth. I believe this is probably a promise that God gives them that in the end, this is what's going to transpire. They're going to know that I loved you and that they were wrong. It's really come amazing when you think about that Jesus Christ, here he was, you know, born a Jew. He came to the Jews first. He offered them everything first. He loved them and he wanted them to know him. And many, many did. But here in this situation, he actually calls their place of worship a synagogue of Satan. So here we have these so-called church people, we might describe them as today, right? And they're coming at these people who don't have much, but they have faith in Jesus Christ. And then on top of that, you have all these other Gentile forces coming after them, plus the Roman Empire keeping an eye on them as well, making sure they worship the emperor. But he tells them, because of all this, because you have kept my command and you have endured patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that has come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. This church of Philadelphia is also a type of churches that exist today. Remember, we talked about that. There are theologians that believe that each one of these churches represents a period of time in, in church history, which could, you know, could be true as well. Greater thing to understand is that not just, you know, these churches haven't gone away. These type of churches haven't disappeared. These type of churches exist today. I'm sure you can agree to that after, you know, going over these scriptures and studying them. I'm sure you can relate or have known of or heard of uh, churches that, you know, are like this. And so now we come to this church who doesn't have a whole lot. And maybe you go to a church that doesn't have much at all. But people love the Lord. You gather together. You pray. You know, you have fellowship together. You're faithful to God. You know, that's all that really matters. I mean, what is gold and silver and all that to God? Nothing. It's meaningless. If you could create gold by the snap of your finger or just the thought of it, and you could stack it up to the heavens, it would have no worth after a while. And that's the way it is to God. These things don't matter to him. His worth is you and me. 
those who follow Christ, those who love him. That, that's his wealth. That's what God considers to be his wealth. So he's telling them, look, you don't have a lot. Don't worry about it. Those who stay faithful in the time in which we live will be spared this great hour of trial that's going to come upon the whole world. So how is that possible? You know, that brings us back to the great rapture debate, right? You know, some of you listening may, you know, believe that there's a rapture coming, and, and some of you may not believe that. You may say, well, you know, I don't believe there's going to be a rapture. I believe church is going to go through the tribulation, and, you know, it's all going to be one coming of Christ, and that's going to be the end of it. Uh, and there's other studies that we've done on that. You can look up on the podcasts and, and research those if you like. Um, but this is a promise, not just to the Church of Philadelphia, because obviously they're long gone. A church, you know, they don't exist anymore. So what is he saying? This is a prophetic utterance, like many of these verses are. And he says, I'm going to keep you from the hour of trial. And this hour, hour of trial he's talking about is the tribulation period. He says it's going to come upon the whole world, not just, you know, the Middle East, not just Israel, to test those who live on the earth. And this goes right along with the teaching of tribulation that we'll get into as we get through uh, this and start moving on through the chapters. This is the purpose of the tribulation period. It's not just to punish people and to make their life miserable and kill people and all this kind of awful stuff that we, we hear about. Yes, the tribulation period is going to be the most awful time that's ever come upon the earth. But what's God's purpose for it? Just to make people suffer? We know that's not true. You know, people believe, some people believe that. I mean, God has no joy in making people suffer. You know, we bring these things upon ourselves. This, this tribulation period is specifically designed to test the world and see if they really love God or who they're going to choose. So during this period of time, they get to choose whether they're going to follow the Antichrist or Christ himself. And this is the purpose for the tribulation period. It has a twofold purpose to bring Israel to their knees and show them their Messiah and bring the world, the rest of the world, to their knees that they might accept Christ before he comes to judge the earth. He promises the Church of Philadelphia, those who have remained faithful, not every church, not every person, but those who have remained faithful to him. No matter what church you go to, it doesn't matter. If you remain faithful to Christ, He's going to keep you from this hour of trial that's going to come upon the whole earth. So he says, I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. And never again will he leave it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down from heaven from my God. What an amazing promise he's given to these people and to those who are faithful. Because of all the earthquakes that happened in Philadelphia and because of the destruction that they went through, it became kind of a custom to name a pillar in the city in honor of a citizen who had given you know, special service to the community. As with every letter in, in this book, Jesus relates to the city and their surroundings so they can, you know, in his teaching, just like he did when he walked on the earth and he talked to the farmers about seeding, he talked to the fishermen about fishing. He relates to them. God is a relator. You know, he knows each one of us personally. So he goes on to tell him, you know, I'm going to write your name just like they do in this town. Well, I'm going to write your name on a pillar in heaven in the new Jerusalem. And I'm going to write my new name on you. 
What a powerful, powerful statement. And so the Church of Philadelphia is a, it's a church that's faithful. And the next church we're going to look at is the Church of Laodicea, which is also prophetic in the sense that we are in the era of the Church of Laodicea. Till next time, God bless. Talk to you soon. Stay close to Jesus.